my home state. Stay tuned for WPKN's Mic Check Show, coming to you every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. Be right back with you. Welcome to WPKN's Mic Check Show, which comes to you every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. Mic Check is a show that brings you national, uh, local, and regional issues and discusses their impact on our local communities. And um, my name is Richard Hill. Uh, I am one of the uh, rotation of hosts who brings you a different show each Sunday. And today, uh, we are very happy to have a special program on Cuba. And uh, to do that, we welcome our uh, good friend, Sandra Levinson, who is the founder and director of the Center for Cuban Studies, uh, originally based in Manhattan, now based in Brooklyn. Sandra, thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here, Richard. Thank you for asking me. Oh, my pleasure. Well, I just want to just mention, I'm proud to say that we've had you on this, uh, these airwaves before, approximately a year ago, um, when I had just returned from a trip to Cuba. And um, you you talked, you gave us a very, very in-depth picture of life in Cuba, the struggles uh, in the face of the U.S. embargo, and uh, the way that... um, the first steps toward fighting uh, back against COVID with the Cuban public health care system were taking shape. But since then, uh, under your recommendation, we've had um, Bob Schwartz the Glo- from the Global Health Partners Organization, who gave a very Im- important update uh, on on uh, the Cuban health care system and their advances toward uh, trying to uh, overcome COVID. 
and um, he made reference to some very important research and reporting by Helen Yaffe, and uh, so we reported that as well. We've also done an interview with Radio Havana Cuba, which I conducted in uh, Havana about a year ago, and an interview with um, uh, in Havana also conducted by myself with um, Nuevo Cancion uh, aficionado and innovator Alberto Faya. So I, I just want to say that in the past year, Sandra, uh, I have not heard any direct reporting from Cuba other than a stray corporate media shill or two talking about these recent demonstrations about Cuba. Nothing about their public health care system or their efforts to combat COVID and their relative success or failure in doing so. So this WPKN, our humble station right here in Bridgeport, Connecticut. <laughs> so Cuba is part of your regional reporting, I gather. <laughs> it's, I, I think it's the only, the only reporting available in this country on, directly from Cuba that talks about the Cuban political system, its economic system, and uh, this uh, valiant struggle they're conducting right now to save, uh, you know, the, their, their population from this uh, grim fate. So well, I, feel, um, I feel very lucky because, you know, because of, unfortunately, horrible Facebook, but because of Messenger and WhatsApp and email, um, we've really been able to keep in constant touch with our friends and colleagues in Cuba. And we've done um, Zoom meetings with them. And, you know, we have been able to keep in touch with relative ease, given the situation. That's good news uh, for certain. For certain. And um, so we're, we're delighted to have you here today. But do do give us, as you say... You've been updated and you're keeping in touch. Why don't you just start by talking maybe very briefly about, you know, the, the structure of the Cuban healthcare system, its public health care uh, structures. Well, I think, and yeah, I think what, you know, um, since you had Bob on, you certainly know what was, what's been going on in terms of the support that we've been giving through the syringes campaign and the PPEs. I, th and I think you have to give us more detail on that because that, that was um, something that, of course, got no coverage whatsoever in, in, in the mainstream media. No, it didn't. Well, this was a situation. As you know, Cuba has developed at least three vaccines, and two of them have been very active already. And Cuba had enough vaccines for their entire population, but they did not have anything else. Um, for example, they didn't have the syringes, and that's what started the syringe campaign. Their vaccines require three shots, right? In other words, they basically include the, bo the bolster in their shots, uh, which meant that with a population of 13 million approximately, they needed 39 million syringes and they had 10 million. And so um, because Global Health Partners has a license to send uh, medical supplies, we started a campaign with many, many groups throughout the United States and Canada 
um, and it that campaign grew to global proportions to some extent. We ended up um, raising almost uh, $600,000 and sending 6 million syringes to Cuba. And that was more than any other country sent. I think Canada sent a couple of million. The Mexican government sent a few million. China sent some. Some came from Europe. But we were very proud of the fact that our six million was actually the largest number from any one country. Um, and so now that Cuba has enough syringes, they have started they started vaccinating the whole country, um, which I was very grateful for. But unfortunately, the syringes didn't arrive in time to save at least six friends of mine who were not able to be vaccinated, and almost all of them in the art world. It was really it's really been very, very sad. Um, and for example, in Cienfuegos, the only people who had been vaccinated as late as the end of July were only the healthcare workers in Cienfuegos, which is a major city. Um, but now Cuba stands number three or four in the in the world in terms of people being partially vaccinated. In fact, I was quite amused on the Sunday morning CBS television show last week. You know, in between the commercials and the program itself, they usually show some interesting statistics. And one of the statistics they were showing, uh, really to show how bad the United States is, um, was to put on the screen the top four countries that had been vaccinated. And then they said top four countries, I think they were all Middle Eastern countries, or, you know, it was Qatar, UAW. You say, number 48, the United States. <laughs> At that point, Cuba was number five. <laughs> so I quickly sent off an email. I'm sure it didn't do any good, but I said, don't you think you could have gone down one more and surprised everyone to see that Cuba was number five? And the United States was number 48. Now Cuba is number three, and the United States is number 47. So that has happened so quickly, Richard. And I think that no matter what else people have to say about Cuba, we must, as a country, recognize what they are doing to combat COVID-19 at a time when the embargo and the attitude of the U.S. government has not permitted them to get any help from anywhere else. Most recently, together with Global Health Partners, we've been raising funds for the PPEs and the masks because essentially in mid-July, Cuba was where New York had been a year ago with an overwhelming number of cases for the population and for the infrastructure. And no PPEs, no masks, no nothing to protect the healthcare workers. <laughs> and so to see that how quickly they are catching up is really impressive. It's very, very impressive. And I doubt very much that they will have any group as we have in the United States saying vaccines kill (laughs) it's it's crazy um but you know the fact that that cuba had to suffer through the covid 
crisis at all is just horrific. And it should be the shame of North America, really, as far as I'm concerned. Um, not one, not one word from the United States except to say something negative about Cuba. We want to help the Cuban people, by which they mean we want to help the Cuban people overthrow this revolutionary government. So it's been very sad for me as a citizen of this country and someone who loves Cuba to see that the Democratic president that we put in office is just as bad as Trump when it comes to Cuba. This is very painful. Yes, and and that, of course, was in response to these uh, demonstrations that occurred. um, On July 11th. Yeah, which uh, are quite suspect in terms of the the actual source of the um, instigation of those demonstrations. Yes, I don't. I don't think there's any doubt that the instigation came from Miami. I also don't think there's any doubt that the Cuban government did not know how to respond and didn't respond well to it. You know, I think that um, instead of calling for revolutionaries to go out into the street in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> they should have basically ignored it, except officially. They shouldn't have called on the Cuban people to protest against those who are already protesting. Mm. I think that that you know that's bad for the society. It's bad for the the social structure, uh, and it wasn't smart. Um, and I think, unfortunately, they might be doing the same thing again because November 11th has been called for more mass protests, and so the government said November 11th will be a day for us to show our support for the government. You know, I, it, it shouldn't be happening that way. But the most, the most important conclusion that we can draw from these is that the protests from everyone I've talked to in Cuba, from everyone who's written to me, the main reason they were protesting was the lack of food and supplies in general, and the fact that they had to stand in line for so many hours in the middle of a pandemic next to people who often were unmasked or didn't have masks and risk getting the disease just in order to get food and basic supplies for their homes. And sure, I mean, you blame the government when you don't get something. That's common in every country, I think. Um, But when I hear Biden's office saying they blame the embargo, it's not the embargo, and then I hear the Cubans say, okay, if you don't think it's the embargo, end it, and then you'll see what happens. (laughs) Then you'll know for sure that it was all our fault and not the embargo. Let me let me just, uh, if I may, interject here a, a quote from Helen Yaffe's latest piece in. Uh, she's so good. Counterpunch. She's she's, thank God, you know she's. Yes. Uh, she's on thank this God. case, um, but she 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 says I'll I'll read the long quote. The rapid vaccine rollout is essential to the arrest of the alarming surge of COVID nineteen cases, in Cuba initially since January twenty twenty one. But soaring as the beta variant 
but soaring as the beta variant took hold in spring, followed by a highly contagious Delta variant into the summer. The rollout of Soberana 2 was delayed. I believe that's the one that is um, being administered now to uh, as children as young as two years old. So Cuba has... Yes, and Abdallah is going to be also. So, so Cuba is the first country in the world to have a vaccine where, which is, can be used by children of that age. Yes. She says the, so. the rollout was delayed due to difficulties obtaining raw materials for industrial production, a exactly. direct result of the U.S. sanctions. The U.S. blockade, which has been f- tightened, as, has imposed multiple obstacles on Cuba's response to the pandemic. For example, in early 2020, the island could not purchase medical ventilators for the ICU units, nor spare parts for its existing uh, machines. And in 2021, it has been unable to purchase syringes and other medical equipment for the vaccination rollout. Millions of syringes have been, this is your point, have been donated by solidarity activists around the world, including millions from the United States. Um, these These are directly imposed, these restrictions on importing spare parts for the ventilators, the ventilators themselves, the PPE, the syringes, directly a result of the U.S. embargo and the tightening of that embargo since uh, Joseph Biden knuckled under to the uh, Miami Cubans in the face of those uh, sort of uh, astroturf demonstrations. It's, uh, it's, it's just... Um, you know, I think you should give your, your readers the direct link to Helen's, to your listeners, I mean, the direct link to Helen's article. Will do, um, yeah. So that's Helen Yaffe, Y-A-F-F-E, and the uh, article's entitled Cuba Accelerates Vaccine Drive, and it appears in Counterpunch magazine online. It's um, from about 10 days ago, so you, you, you'll have to go into their archive a little bit to find it. But, and I um, think they should also look for, um, I, I think it's a video of the Cuban homemade ventilators. <laughs> yes, and they've also had a difficulty because you know there have been you know failures in their own equipment, their domestic equipment, which again could not be repaired because they couldn't get the sp- spare parts. But now That's right. they're they're being restored now, and uh, there are donations of those uh, machines coming in from, as you said, China. I believe Venezuela is even participating in that in spite of their troubles. No, because of the embargo, Cuba has always been forced to invent. So fortunately, they're good at inventing stuff. But if they have no raw materials, it's very, very difficult. But I remember in the 90s, one uh, very important art institution in Havana actually uh, put up an art exhibit of items that had been invented during the early 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed and there was there was no nothing right 
I mean, they had to make lamps. They had to make spare parts for cars. They, everything they had to invent. And some of them really were pieces of art. It was mm. a wonderful, wonderful exhibit. <laughs> well, and you, you might want to say a word or two about your support of Cuban arts and uh, how you bring and make that available to uh, people in our country through yes, uh, the center. Yes, I think it's important because, you know, the one thing that people, uh, I mean, the United States is so obsessed with the Cuban political system and with what they call the Havana syndrome, which uh, we're criticized for calling it the China virus, but it seems okay to call it the Havana syndrome when it's taking place in several other countries as well. And now everyone knows that the Cubans are not at fault. Um, but I think that one of the this is this is the uh, the Cuban the Cuban death ray right that was uh... the dipl- the diplomats the attempt to get the U.S. diplomats all over the world. <laughs> it's just the most the, mo- the most ludicrous. Uh... Of course, even the United States government has said it will stop calling it the Havana syndrome, but that hasn't stopped the media from continuing to call it the Havana syndrome. They haven't gotten the message even from the U.S. government. Mm. But I think that one of the most important aspects of Cuban society since the revolution has been the the cultural revolution and what Cuba has accomplished culturally in the arts. And, of course, it is played up in most other countries except in the United States. And so one of of our reasons for existing um, is to promote the arts in Cuba. I mean, for example, right now we have a, a show called Cultivando Sueños, uh, Tending Dreams, right? Um, which is a, a show of more than 165 paintings by Cuban self-taught artists, um, all of them since the revolution, many of them deciding that they might paint in order to survive in the 90s because of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So professionals who had been working at something else, many of them teaching or social workers or even academics in universities, um, took up what they had done as children, painting. (laughs) And so although there's a long folk art tradition in Cuba, but not by very many artists. Um, What happened as a result of the 90s economic crunch was an overwhelming number of young and old and middle-aged artists who suddenly decided that they wanted to look around and paint what they saw. And we've really helped to promote that even in Cuba, because the Cubans were, have always been so proud of their professional art schools that they didn't really pay much attention to the self-taught artists, the autodidactos in Cuba, the folk artists. Um, they wanted to show that they were capable of joining the ranks of the world's professional artists with abstract art, realism, whatever, but studied art. Mm-hmm. So promoting folk art was not one of their, was not high on the list of the Cuban 
um, art world. And I think that we have really helped promote this kind of art, not only here, but in Cuba. I mean, now in Cuba, um, the professional art world recognizes the importance of that kind of art in Cuba because it tells so much about Cuban society. These artists are not trying to join the metropolitan art centers in New York or Paris or London. They're trying to show how they live. And so we thought it was really important now at this time to put up a show that allows people to see how Cubans live every day and what they see every day and what they dream about. So Sa- that's what we've been doing. <laughs> Sa- Sandra, how do, how do you do that? So how, you, do, you, do you actually uh, bring the artwork here or do you bring facsimiles of it here? And, and oh, no, we actually bring the artwork back. Remember, we sued the U.S. Treasury Department in 1992 for the right to bring in original Cuban art and we won. We had already been bringing in original Cuban art. Frankly, I didn't know it was illegal. Um, but so we have about 10,000 works of Cuban art, um, about 5,000 are posters, about 2,000 are photographs, and the other 3,000 are paintings, drawings, lithographs, everything. We probably have more than 10,000 now. We had 10,000, five six years ago. I don't think we've counted them since. How can people view this work? Well, they can they can come to the center in Brooklyn, but they can also view it online. If you go to our website, which is simply centerforcubanstudies.org and um, click on exhibits, you'll see all of our recent exhibits because, of course, during COVID, no one was able to come in and see the exhibits. The exhibit before this one was on Black Lives Matter in Cuba, and that one we opened um, in January. And you can see many of the exhibits, um, and in addition, throughout the website, there is art for sale. Um, We have a tremendous collection of ephemera, art catalogs from Cuba, of almost every, every conceivable artist who ever had a show. Um, so we've collected a lot of materials, and it's basically available to people to see for study or to buy. <laughs> and what and what happens to the exchange of money there? Does the does that go directly back to those original artists, or does it go into some more? Well, gen- a lot of the art we have purchased directly from the artists. I see. If the artists give it to us on consignment. Then we share the we share the money, yeah. um, and and we share to whatever percentage they want. We don't set a percentage, mm-hmm. and they've been really nice to us a lot. This one group of folk artists in Santiago de Cuba just sent us a note saying that for our 50th anniversary in 2022, they were donating. 15 to 20 paintings to us and that they were going to try and at least get them to Havana so that they might eventually get to New York. But it's not 2022 yet. I plan to be there before that. Barbara, in the, in the remaining minutes, and we really are down no, to... No, Sandra, not Barbara. I'm sorry. Why do I keep doing that? <laughs> <clears throat> I think I had a girlfriend in high school named Barbara Levinson or something. <laughs> but anyway... Um, just we we are down to about two and a half minutes. Um, 
I just wanted to mention that the um, uh, getting getting back to some of the statistics here and the fight against COVID in, in Cuba, that the a the aim is to have 90% of the population, 90% of the population fully vaccinated by December, and from mid November. Yes, and I think they'll make it. Yeah. And and so in November, I mean, they've got more than they've got eighty five percent who have already had their their first dose now. Right, 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 right. That's right. So and um, so they're they're uh, contemplating and getting ready to reopen in a very uh, careful and calibrated way the tourist industry. Um, that's correct. Bringing people, you know, who, from countries with high vaccination rates and, of course, who have all been tested and vaccinated. but So that will give a much-needed boost to the Cuban economy, which has been, of course, flagging even worse because of the shutdown of the, of the uh, tourist industry. Oh, um, it's been terrible. I mean, after all, that, that's their main source of income. Right. Barbara, we we are down to a minute, and uh, I want to you thank. You called me Barbara again. I did. You're I, did. In trouble. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm still. I'm still pining. I'll give you Richard. <laughs> still pining for Barbara. All right. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us, Sandra Levinson of the Center for Cuban Studies. Come back again soon and give us another update. You're very welcome, and thank you very much for inviting me, Richard. Okay. Good. Well. Good luck. Okay. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.